Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Sunday school can shape a child's future. It reinforces the vital lessons that parents teach children. And Sunday schools are notorious for using the rhetorical question. Usually, such questions have but one answer. The answer is a single Jesus. You know, who's living in your heart? Jesus. Who's the Savior of all? Jesus. Etc., etc. Well, let me take you into a Sunday school at a church in Kentucky where the teacher is trying to give a lesson on Noah's Ark and wants to involve these four-year-olds in the lesson. So she says, tell you what, I'm going to describe something to you and you guess what it is. And so she begins, I'm furry, I have a bushy tail, I like to climb trees. The kids stared back at the teacher with a blank look. She continued, she said, I like to eat nuts, especially acorns. Again, blank stare. She knows this isn't going very well. She drops a few more hints. I'm usually brown or gray, sometimes black, even red. No takers. Then she turned to a little perky four-year-old that the teacher knew always had the answers. Michelle, she said, what do you think it is? Michelle looked over at her classmates hesitantly and she said, well, I know the answer has to be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. (laughs) In a series on the foundations of our faith, you'd certainly expect a study or two on Jesus Christ. After all, He is the answer. He is God's answer. He is our answer to sin, to eternity. He's the answer to the world's problem of suffering, ultimately. He's the center of prophetic scripture, the hope of Israel. A.W. Tozer was right when he said, we don't preach Christ with a comma after His name as though waiting for something else. We don't preach Christ with a dash after His name as though leading to something else. We preach Christ, period. Period. But who is Jesus? Who was He? Was He just a good man? Was He a madman? Was He somebody who tried to delude, misrepresent Himself to the people? Or was He the God-man? There's always a steady stream of theories concerning Jesus Christ, uh, all the way from, I read he was a magician who practiced hypnosis, Uh, he was a guru, a world traveler. Uh, One report even said they believed Jesus was the husband of Mary Magdalene, with whom he sought to procreate a secret lineage to rule the world. Who was Jesus? That's the very question that Peter asked the disciples. It's an examination, you might say, after about two, two and a half years of ministry. It's a test that has two questions. One is general and one is personal. One is optional if you get it right. The second answer is pass or fail. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? 
Now, what I love about this, and we'll get into this, is Peter, out of all of these guys, is the only one who gets it right. Keep that in mind. Yes, Peter, the one we always ditz, is the only guy that gets an A on the test. And Peter is the one who will write, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Back in the 1960s and 70s, some of us were a part of what was called the Jesus Movement. That's just a title given to a great revival that I pray to God continues on throughout our history. And it's called the Jesus Movement because it wasn't a denomination or a brand or a flavor. It was all about Jesus. And so people said, ooh, this is unique. This is the Jesus Movement. No, the Jesus Movement starts here. We'll read about it. In Matthew 16, verse 13, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The identity and essentiality of Jesus Christ. First question, who do men say that I am? You know, if anybody else were to ask that question, it would be construed as arrogant. If I were to say, who do people say that I, Skip Heitzig, am? You'd say, who cares (laughs) who you are? Who do you think you are? But this is Jesus and it's appropriate. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, Jesus had been training them, as I mentioned, for two, two and a half years. This is right about that mark of His ministry. They'd watched His miracles. They'd heard His messages. What had they retained? What had they learned? Who did they believe Him to be? And so He takes them away, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, As far as I can gather, this is the summertime and it's hot all over Israel, but especially Galilee being about 700 feet below sea level. Uh, Mount Hermon is 9,600 feet high. The foot of Mount Hermon or Hermon is where the Jordan River begins and it's lush, green, quiet, cool plateau. It's as if Jesus gets his guys away from the hustle and bustle to a very significant place for R&R, but more than that. Caesarea Philippi was significant to the Jews because, as I mentioned, the Jordan River began here. It, It flowed literally, what it looked like, out of the rock and gave life to all of Israel. So it was important to the Jews. There were also about 14 different pagan temples on that one site. Various worship centers. At one time was the worship center of Baal, Baal, the Old Testament god of fertility, the sun god. It was a high place. 
Herod the Great even built a temple of worship to Caesar Augustus because he was regarded as God, deity, Caesar of the gods. The Greeks renamed this area Paneos because according to their legend, the Greek god Pan was born in a nearby cave. You can still see those caves today if you visit it. In fact, it's still called Banias to this day because the Arabs can't pronounce the P's. So instead of Paneas after the Greek god, it's Banias. But here's my point. It is as if Jesus deliberately takes his disciples to an area known for, soaked in a religious atmosphere, the backdrop of all things spiritual and significant to contrast that with himself as being unique. Now they'd listened to him for two and a half years. He'd been doing all the talking. Now it's their turn. He wants to hear their answers. Hey boys, let's have a talk. What's the buzz around town? Who do people say that I am? Get some talking. And it's very revealing. There was a mom who took her daughter to the pediatrician for a checkup. The pediatrician is trying to engage the little girl to talk a little bit. This girl seems scared or quiet. So the doctor does the doctor thing, takes out his otoscope and looks into the ears and says, Am I going to find Big Bird inside there? girl says nothing. Doctor takes the tongue depressor, looks down the child's throat. Will I find the cookie monster down there? Girl's not amused, says nothing. Finally takes the stethoscope to the heart and says, Will I hear Barney inside there? At this, the little girl speaks and she says, Oh no, sir, Jesus is in my heart. Barney's on my underpants. <laughs> Let's see what the disciples say. They said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's amazing that in so short a time, there are so many different opinions about Jesus going around, and every one of them is wrong. It goes to show you that if you're going to make a decision about Christ based on other people's opinions, you'll probably be wrong. I know a little bit about gossip. When we first came to this town, it was a very interesting thing to observe the general public's opinion of us. Mark, you remember well. I can see you out there. You remember the growth. Um, we were called a cult. Who are those people meeting in that apartment thing? And that storefront. Only cults meet in storefronts. I remember a minister in town sort of felt sorry for us and he was trying to give us some advice. So he said, okay, you're going to have a Sunday morning service. Now, when are you going to take the offering? I said, well, we're not really going to take a formal offering. We're just going to have a coffee can. What? It'll never work. Uh, what about pledge cards? Do you have the pledge cards ready? You know, when you have your first Sunday service, you need to pass out those pledge cards to get a budget going for the next year. I said, ah, oh, we don't believe in pledge cards. We're not going to do an offering formally or pledge cards. He said, you will never survive. 
you'll never make it. One pastor in town, still around, felt so sorry for me, he decided he would buy me a robe. (laughs) Just to lend credibility to my poor ministry. People would take me more seriously if you had a robe. And all sorts of rumors about my bodyguards, etc. I don't have any, by the way. Now, the rumor mills were flying around Nazareth and Galilee, Jerusalem, about Jesus. Some said he was John the Baptist. Why? Well, they were related. They were cousins, right? They had different ministries, but there was a similarity of style between John and Jesus. John the Baptist was a fiery, no-compromising kind of a preacher. By the way, so was Jesus. John's first message was one on repentance. So was Jesus. John wasn't afraid to confront the Pharisees and the leaders. Neither was Jesus. John did and said some pretty outlandish things. So did Jesus. He overturned the tables of the money changers. By the way, that is not how most people in modern times picture Jesus Christ as a fiery, zealous, uncompromising preacher. We have a Sunday school version tucked away in our minds. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. While Jesus is over in the corner with a whip in his hands, overturning the tables of the money changers. We wear the bracelets. What would Jesus do? Look at what he would do. I'm not advocating violence, by the way. So why would they say Jesus was John the Baptist if John the Baptist, by the time this happens, is dead? Herod, you remember, had him killed, had him beheaded. Well, it was Herod Antipas who started the rumor. He looked at Jesus' ministry and said, it must be John the Baptist, he's back. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. He's come back with a vengeance, and he felt guilty. The second person they said he was was Elijah. You might ask, well, now Elijah's been dead by this time 900 years. Why would they think it's Elijah? You know, there was a prediction. The very last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi, for you Italians, Malachi. (laughs) Chapter 4. God said, Behold, I will send to you Elijah before that great and notable day of the Lord, and he will turn back the fathers' hearts to the children and the children back to the fathers. It was always anticipated, still is in the Passover feast, that Elijah would come before the Messiah comes. The Jews said, When Elijah comes, the Messiah will not be far away. And that's why at every Passover, a door is kept slightly ajar, and there's an empty chair there at the Passover supper, just in case Elijah pops in. Elijah was the greatest prophet. Elijah was the prophet in the Old Testament who performed miracles like raising a woman's son from the dead, drying up the earth with a drought, causing it to rain again, all sorts of miracles with this prophet. Jesus was a miracle worker. And perhaps they saw the ministry similarity and thought, He must be the forerunner of the Messiah. He is like Elijah, the prophet. Then they thought some that he was like Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Now I find this one interesting because that was the buzz going around town. 
And here is an opinion, not based on fact, not based on scripture, but based on purely an unsubstantiated legend. Here's the legend. It was believed by some that when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem hundreds of years before, the Jeremiah the prophet went into the temple, took the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense and hid them in a cave in Mount Nebo, just across the Dead Sea, so that the Babylonians wouldn't take it. And according to this legend, they said, before the Messiah arrives, Jeremiah will come and produce these articles of furniture and by doing so, restore them to their proper place and bring in the glory of God to the nation of Israel once more. This must be Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I meet people all the time who base their beliefs about Jesus Christ exactly the same way people did back then, on unsubstantiated legend or myth. They tell you their belief system. Well, why do you believe that? Well, I just do. Well, have you ever researched it? Have you ever done any digging? I just know I'm right. Really? You're going to face God with that lame position? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. I read a report about a French-Canadian cult who claimed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a cloning. A cloning. Jesus' resurrection was a cloning performed by aliens who created the human race in a laboratory DNA experiment about 25,000 years ago. No evidence of that. It's pure legend. It's pure hearsay. But it's postulated. Not long ago, I was at Krispy Kreme Donuts for church after church. And we started talking to a guy, and we were telling him about Jesus and the gospel. And he got very definitive when he said, Look, everybody knows we all came here because of aliens. Oh, we did. Do you know that to be true? I do. Have you researched it? No. But he was willing to believe a myth, a legend, hearsay, some weird thing he heard off the radio or television and is willing to believe that through life and stake his eternity on it. So they said, you're like Jeremiah. We know the legend or one of the prophets. There's something else, by the way. It could be that they saw something in Jesus that reminded them of Jeremiah. That's why they went back to this legend. Jeremiah was very compassionate, wasn't he? He was called the weeping prophet. He wept over Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations. Jesus also was marked by compassion. He looked at the crowds and had compassion on them, the gospel writers tell us, because they looked like sheep who had no shepherd. And Jesus would weep over Jerusalem soon, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you. And so there was a similarity between Jeremiah, the compassionate weeping prophet, and Jesus. Now those are three that are mentioned here. I want you to go quickly to John chapter 8 for just a moment. Let's look at some more. There are seven opinions I found total in the New Testament I want to show you. John chapter 8 is, if you know your... New Testament is one of the heights of confrontation in Jesus' ministry. He's speaking to Jewish leaders who 
are all up in arms because, after all, Abraham is our forefather. We can trace our lineage to Abraham. They make a big deal out of this. Look at verse 39, John 8. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father, which he will later on say is the devil. Notice their response. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. That is a slur. We have another word in English for it, which I won't say. You know what it is. An illegitimate child. You see, they knew all about the betrothal of his mother Mary to Joseph and that she turned up pregnant before they were ever married and that Joseph wasn't his real father. And so they're saying, what right do you have? You're not even legitimate in birth. And you're lecturing us, leaders, sons of Abraham. Go back to chapter 7. John 7. Verse 12. And there was much complaining among the people concerning Jesus. Some said, He is good. That's what people said of Him. He's good. Agathos. He's a good, upstanding, fine, honorable person. That's what the word means. He's a good person. Now, you ought to know something, that when Jesus began His ministry, just about everyone thought He was good. Even the Pharisees in Jerusalem, the leadership, who now is against Him, all of them thought Jesus was a good guy. Nicodemus said, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Nobody can do the things you do unless God is with them. So he began with this reputation and still there's people saying, oh, he's good. Nothing wrong with Jesus. This is, I find, the most common belief that people have of Christ today. This is the most common American belief about Jesus. He is a good man, nothing more. Spoke great words. He's a fine example. He was a wonderful teacher. He spoke to his generation. But that's it. He was just a good guy. Even the German rationalist Strauss said of Jesus that he is the highest model of religion. Renan, the French atheist, even paid a compliment to Christ when he said Jesus was the greatest among the sons of men. But look in the same verse. We have a sixth belief about Jesus. Some said he is good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. Some said he was good. And then in the same conversation, there's a group of people saying, no, he's a deceiver. The word deceives the people means he causes people to fall away from the truth and wander into error and sin. It's a very strong word. The Jewish Talmud describes Jesus Christ as being the illegitimate son of Mary, whom they fancy for some reason was a hairdresser. Jesus was called Panthera by some. Jesus learned the magical arts while in Egypt and instigated a rebellion. That's his description, a deceiver. That was the accusation they brought to Pontius Pilate after the resurrection. 
The chief priests and Pharisees said to Pilate, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. When they wanted to have him crucified, their accusation in Luke 23, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Well, what a gamut, man. What a variety of opinion. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, a good guy, bad guy, deceiver. There is a group called the Jesus Seminar. I'm sure you've heard of them by now. It's a group of guys, gals that meet together in Arizona twice a year, and they decide all on their own what words of Jesus he really said. They vote on them. They vote on them as they're immersed in their scholarship. And there was an article in Time Magazine some time back where they said of Jesus, quote, He may have been a carpenter. Probably he was illiterate. He belonged to a low caste of artisans. He didn't preach salvation from sin through sacrifice. He never cured any diseases. As for the other miracles, no loaves and fishes, no water into wine, no raising of Lazarus from the dead, and certainly no resurrection for himself. It's all deception, in other words. Now, I want you to hear those accusations. Once again, some said he's an illegitimate child, he is a deceiver, and he's a pervert. He perverts the nation. Talk about having accusations, misunderstood ideas about you leveled against you. Now, why, why am I spending time on it? For this reason. Because some of you right now, tonight, are in the midst of a situation where you feel terribly mismarked, misunderstood, accused. People you love, people you know, they're saying things about you. You've tried to no avail. You need to know you are not alone. Your Savior, not everybody said, good guy, prophet, Elijah, but a deceiver, one who perverts the nation. All in fulfillment of Scripture, Isaiah said, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. There's one final one, John chapter 7. Look at verse 19. Jesus is speaking, Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus Christ? You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. You ought to know that the ancient Jews relegated any abnormal behavior to them as demon possession. If it was weird or eccentric, they would say, He's demon possessed. In other words, he's nuts, and he's nuts. He's a madman because he's demonized. That was their superstition. By the way, it wasn't just these guys. Did you know his own family thought he was a madman? His mom, his brothers, when they came to get him because he was so busy and he couldn't eat, it says when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him home with them. He's out of his mind, they said. So, there's the opinions of Jesus, everything from a good man to a con man to a madman running the gamut. 
I found one final thing that I'm not going to include in a special category, but speaking of madmen, there's a guy who wrote a book. He's a Semitic scholar. John Allegro is his name. And the name of the book is The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. I know it's a weird sound because it's a weird book based on a very weird premise that Jesus Christ wasn't historical at all. Jesus Christ was a code name for an hallucinogenic mushroom taken by the first century Christians. Puts a whole new spin on evangelism, doesn't it? (laughs) Dude, you want some Jesus? See, there are as many opinions of Jesus as there are people, it seems. But it's always important to ask Jesus what he said about himself. What are the claims of Jesus? Now, this is important because once you look at them, you rule out so many of the other opinions. Jesus made such incredible claims. No one else made. Confucius never claimed to be God. Buddha never said, I am the only way, the truth, and the life. Muhammad and the others never made the kind of claims that Jesus made. Now, given his claims, there's no way, according to C.S. Lewis, and we've quoted this to you before, there's no way, given the claims of Christ, that you could ever say Jesus was a good guy, a fine example, a wonderful teacher. C.S. Lewis says, and by the way, he was a once agnostic professor of Renaissance literature at Cambridge University, converted to Christianity. He said, quote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Do you ever, 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 in reading the New Testament, recall Jesus saying something like, I just want you to know I'm a fine, wonderful example, and a good moral teacher, and a nice guy, and people like me? (laughs) No! Here's a sampling of his claims. To the Samaritan woman, he said, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst. To the crowds in John 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Anyone who eats of this will live forever. To the leaders in John 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. In John 8, again to the leaders, I am from above. You are from below. I am not of this world. And in the same chapter, before Abraham existed or was, I existed or I am. John 10, he said, I am the door. Those who come in through me will be saved. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. In John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Same chapter to Philip. He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And in John 18, to Punches Pilate, he said, you say that I am a king, and you're right. For this reason, for this purpose, I was born. So, put them all together. Just this sampling. 
What does Jesus claim about himself? Well, he says he's the quencher of thirst, satisfier of hunger, light of the world, that he's from heaven, that he predates Abraham, that he's the door of salvation, that he's the exact representation of his father, and that he is the king. A good man won't say those things about himself unless they're true. And he's not just a good man. A madman wouldn't live like Jesus lived, serving and loving and pouring out his self for people's salvation. And a con man wouldn't suffer the ignominious death and suffering of a Roman cross. Those are the claims of Christ. So you've got seven opinions in the New Testament about who Jesus is, all of them wrong. Then you've got the claims of Jesus Christ. Oh, P.S., Thousands of people, millions of people for thousands of years have trusted in Jesus Christ and they have a uniform testimony that He changes their lives and forgives their sins. Hmm. There must be something to those claims after all. Go back to Matthew. We'll close this up. That is the identity of Christ according to Christ and according to others. But he presses it further to something more essential than even that. He said in verse 15, But who do you say that I am? Oh, now it's personal. Forget about others. Forget about third person standoffish. I'm not aloof anymore. Take that off the theological shelf. Personalize it. What is your Christology, disciples? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, you get an A, Peter. You're right. Blessed are you. Right on, man. You got it. I am personally glad that of all the disciples there, Peter got it right. Because you know what? Peter has been the object of scorn by so many people for so long, and in some cases rightly so, but maybe we're a little overboard. I think that in heaven there's probably going to be a long line of preachers waiting to apologize to Peter for all the things they've said about him, perhaps. Of all the guys, Peter got it right. All these seven opinions have been wrong. Jesus says, Peter, you're right. You got it right. You are the Christ, Peter said. Now, I probably don't have to tell you this, but in case you don't know, Christ isn't his last name. Some people think it is. Jesus, that's his first name. Christ, that's his last name. He lived at the Christ house. That was the family name. It wasn't. It's a Greek word, a rendering for the Hebrew Mashiach. He is the Messiah. You are the Christ. From an earthly Jewish perspective, you are the Redeemer we've always hoped for. But from a heavenly divine perspective, you are the Son of God. Not a Son of God. Not a child of God among many. The unique Son of God. Now I'm asking you, as we close, to make it personal. Is Jesus Christ your Redeemer Messiah? Is he your hope, personally, or is he just your parents' 
Redeemer. Your parents' and grandparents' hope. Your girlfriend's Redeemer. You see, the first question anybody can answer, what are people's opinions? Oh, you can add to that, but who do you say that he is? Now, that's the question, and I close, really close, with a warning. It's not written here, but I'll tell you why this question is so essential. From Jesus' own lips to the leaders of Jerusalem in John chapter 8, Jesus said, For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John chapter 3, He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you see then that answering that question, that issue, is the most essential life issue? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Because if you don't believe he is who he said he is, let me tell you something. You will die in your sin. I know it's not preached about much, but there is a hell that is eternal, that is the consequence of all those who hear and reject the truth of Jesus Christ. People don't like to hear it. People don't like to believe it. Oh, they love to believe in heaven. They don't want anything to do with God while they're alive until they're dead. Then would you bury my relative and say he's in heaven? Well, let me tell you something. If you don't believe he is who he says he is, you're going to die in your sins. And you're condemned already. And that's not why Jesus came. He came to redeem and to save and to be your king. And so the bottom line of all, the foundation of the faith, the Christian doctrine, is who is Jesus Christ to you personally? Hear about the old guy that had trouble hearing even though he wore a hearing aid? Went to his ear doctor. Doctor took the hearing aid out. The guy could hear beautifully. His hearing improved immediately. Why? Because he wore the hearing aid for 20 years in the wrong ear. What a drag, man. What a waste. What have you been listening to? Who are you listening to that has helped form your opinion, your worldview about who Jesus is? You've been listening to your college professors? Some of them are good, some of them aren't. You know what? Your college professors are going to stand before God to give an account. You've been listening to your unsafe friends? Every one of them individually will stand before God one day. Marilyn Manson will stand before God. Every member of the ACLU will stand squarely before God. Every member of the media, every songwriter, every poet will have to stand before God to answer, and so will you. One person said, one of the reasons people find it hard to be obedient to the commands of Jesus Christ is they're uncomfortable taking commands from a stranger. So I ask you, is that what he is to you tonight? A stranger, a good guy, a prophet, whatever title you have relegated him to, he's a stranger to you. He's not your personal Savior who came to redeem you from your sins. Friend, it is time. Now is the time. If you've been sitting on the fence for a long period of time, 
And you've just been watching and you have been doing the theology sort of arm's length, third person. Jesus would say to you tonight, who do you say that I am? And your answer, be careful how you answer it, will determine your eternity. Heavenly Father, we're not content to study a bunch of texts about the foundations of the faith from a microscopic or telescopic or laboratory perspective. It must become ours. It must be personal or it is useless. We can wrangle and wrestle and philosophize, but tonight, with this issue, it must be personal. The same approach Jesus had then He is approaching us with tonight. As we look around our world and hear all of the differing opinions as to who Jesus was or is, there are many who are still saying He was just a prophet, an ascended master, one among many. Some who are saying, well, He was a good guy. Others saying He was a liar, a deceiver. Who do we say? And tonight, Lord, as we search our hearts before you, the living God, before whom we will all one day stand, I ask that you would now touch hearts. Speak to those lonely ones who need a friend. Show them you'd be their best friend. Speak to those, Lord, who are immersed in guilt because of a habit that they feel is unconquerable. Show them how powerful your Holy Spirit can be in their life. Lord, those struggling because of a failed marriage and they feel so unloved, convince them of your great love. Reach out to them now. And ultimately, Lord, bring everyone who is not yours personally into a relationship presently for all eternity. Lord, we ask you to do now in these seconds what no song or preaching could ever affect, and that is the conviction of sin, the desire for righteousness, and that beautiful cleansing that comes when one turns to you, to 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 when one turns to you, 